Welcome into the Yachts and Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this Monday edition of the show. Mondays mean we open up the mailbag. You guys, the listener, the viewer, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, you guys dictate the show. Uh, we answer your questions. We've got a wide variety of questions. Uh, and it's that type of year where basketball is kind of at the forefront, but football is always kind of at the back of your mind. And I think that kind of dictates what what the show is going to be about as well. Yeah, no, you're right. We are we are um, closing in on postseason basketball, so of course there's a lot of interest there. And with both programs being fairly high profile locally, uh, it makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, both kind of had a tough weekend. I know the men yep. at least got a split, which is good. The women uh, continue to lose. We'll get to that. There's a question at the back end about that. Um, but as you said, Matt, uh, football will almost always lead our mailbag. Uh, and it will today with a question. And how can you not sh- start a show with a question from a guy named Mike Hamburger One? I mean, that's just a, <laughs> that might be the best name we've had asked a question before. So from, from Mike Hamburger One, <laughs> with Lanning's overhaul of the roster, what are the new expectations for the next year? Um, love the question. Love the question asker's name and handle on Twitter probably even a little bit more. Uh, but I thought it was a good place to start. It's kind of a broad question. Um, I don't know if we've really set expectations yet. I know I haven't done, I think I'm going to probably this week or next do my just way too early prediction on the schedule, just to kind of go through that exercise to see if I think they're just by looking at it, does it look like a nine win season, a 10 win season, 11 win season? And I know I won't be saying a 12 win season. Um, I can guarantee you that one already, but uh, no, I think this is a good place to kind of start today's show. We've had enough time now to Oregon's finished its signing class. For the time being, they've added the transfer portal players, I think, that we expect them to add. And the roster is sort of set for now. Um, obviously, there's, there needs to be changes going forward. But I, I kind of look at this and think, to me, uh, I'm encouraged by the moves. And I am also still want to kind of see it. I think that's kind of where I'm at, especially with some of the defensive stuff. Because this last year was, as we've been over before, we don't have to uh, belabor the point, was 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 underwhelming at times and disappointing certainly uh in games that they lost uh but you know i think they've addressed everything i think that's the thing we've talked about defensively they basically addressed every position group that they had holes with um through the portal they they really addressed the defensive line and front seven in general through the signing class so they they're certainly as as mike kind of gets to here the the roster looks a lot different defensively like there's reason to be optimistic excuse me that they can be better um but I'm not really ready to sit here on, what is it, February 13th and and suggest that this is a team, like I said, that that's going to run the table and be undefeated and go play in a college football playoff. Um, I, I know that the expectation for a lot of fans every year is is it's like college football playoff or bust. Um, that sets you up to be pretty disappointed when you're not one of the four teams that gets to go do that every year. Um, I think this team certainly has the potential to make a run like that i mean shoot they were a couple of wins away from doing something this last year with a roster that i think defensively at least was a lot more um had more holes like i think oregon's defense defensively this year should be a little better um but that's maybe us being optimistic in february we haven't seen how these new players fit but um, I, i still think the expectations should be win the conference win double digit games play uh you know uh probably this year, it would probably be a little disappointing if you didn't win all your non-conference regular season games to start. I know Texas Tech's a quality opponent, but if you're Oregon and you are and you have lofty expectations, that's probably a game you need to win. Um, and then in conference play, I, I don't think it's, I think it's too much to ask probably to go to run the table, but 
you finish with one loss, two losses, that probably isn't super unreasonable. And then you go play for a conference championship. I think that's that can be the expectations. So um, I'm probably a little too broad there, but it's also February and I haven't seen any of these players in practice. So it's hard for me to really know exactly what they've got. But based upon the research I've done, I, I think the defense should be, in theory, a little better. But shoot, we haven't seen it. And I, don't, I feel weird being like, yeah, they're not going to lose a game this year. No, I mean, they'll lose a game. I, I think the expectations are exactly what they were last year. Compete sure. for a college football playoff berth and win the, win the conference. That's been the expectations for the last couple of seasons. Um, I see no reason as to why this should change. I mean, Oregon's bringing in 40 new players. Uh, we talked about all of last year. Uh, the defense at points really stunk, and we need to give Dan Lanning a chance with his own guys, his players. Tosh Lupoy got a chance to go out, recruit, get his own dudes, and see how the defense does. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen this season. Um, we'll see if it's any better or not. Like Eric, I'm cautiously optimistic that the defense will be better. I think that the pass rush will be better, which in turn will help the secondary out because quarterbacks <clears throat> won't have all day and tomorrow to throw. Um, so that'll be good. But in terms of expectations for next year, I mean, it's I, I think expectations are just exactly the same. I don't think that they're going to change anytime soon. I think when you get to a program level like Georgia or Alabama or Clemson and you win national championships, then your expectations change. But I think for every competitive market or not competitive market, but every competitive team in the country, the expectations are to make the college football playoffs. And while I think that's an unrealistic expectation for a lot of programs, um, I think Oregon certainly has the tools. I think they have the coaching staff. I think they have the player development and I think yeah. they have the pedigree behind them that they can get them to that champ or that college football playoff berth. Will they do it? Hell if I know, it's February. I mean, this is why you play the games. So thank you, Herm Edwards. I, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's good. I mean, it's a good thing that we're having this, this discussion now. I think people are always going to be optimistic around this time because that's basically all we're hearing is good things. That's all we're feeding you guys as the listeners um, are good things about the program because that's what we're hearing. But uh, come October 17th, we'll see. And going into the just the middle of the year, Eric. There's no. I just picked an arbitrary date. I, I, just, I just for my own research purposes, I want to know who they play right around there to see what the what's what's disappointing about that. Play go of the for year. it. I, yeah, I just we'll see what they look like during the season. It's it's. But regardless, before week one in Portland State, like they're the expectations are make a college football playoff run, win the conference championship, beat beat Oregon State, and beat Washington. The arbitrary date you picked is the uh, two days after the Washington game. Just FYI. That's a good arbitrary date by me. So you're welcome. <laughs> good. Well done. <laughs> I I think doesn't really matter what the roster turnover looks like, how many guys come back, who the head coach is at Oregon. Um, as long as the program continues its progress and uh, it's a success that we've seen since basically 2009, um, you know, there's been some ups, there's been some, you know, some downs too during that time period, but the expectation since about then is you compete for the conference championship. Um, that's not winning the conference championship, but the expectation for Oregon football, no matter what happens every off season is that going into the month of November, the games that matter the most seem to always have the biggest pressure on them. Oregon's in the hunt. And if you're in the hunt for the conference championship, that more than likely means you're in the discussion for the college football playoff in some capacity. Uh, you're in the discussion for a New Year's Six Bowl game in some capacity. 
and and that should be the goal and that is the expectation for Oregon that you are in the hunt for the conference championship and that's different I want to make that clear that's very different than the league has to be won you know the expectation of winning the league that's different um I I don't think that's attainable every single season now yes there are years where Oregon will go into a season and and we will say like if they don't win the conference championship, that feels like a disappointment. That was 2019. Um, next year, 2023, yeah, they should go into November with having a chance to win the league and getting to the to the Rose Bowl or whatever the equivalent is. I think the Rose Bowl hosts this season uh, for the college football playoff. But um, that that should be the goal. That should be the expectation. And if it gets below that, that means Oregon's had a you know a string of really bad seasons. Yeah, no, and I think that's fair to point out that there are kind of almost I would call static expectations, just expectations that don't change. And I think you're right, Matt. I think barring it being a year where everything like it's just a crazy off season, maybe there's I don't even know what would constitute that, but like maybe uh, if there's a scandal, half the yeah, a scandal and everybody leaves and stuff like that, and the program is you know like that. But I mean, to your point of that being the expectation since 2009, I think you're right. That has been the expectation. And the reality is, is almost every year they've kind of lived up to at least being in that position with the exception of uh, 16, 17, and 18. Um, the whole first part of the 2010 decade, they either won the conference or were competing for it. Um, and then the last several years here, they were in the conference championship in 2019. They were in the conference championship in 2020. They were in the conference championship in 2021. And then this last year, they were obviously a play here, a play away from from being back again. So they've done a good job of reaching that expectation now. The, but I do think, as Matt said, that there are years where we will say they have to win the conference championship, that they, they are set up for success. This isn't one of those years. The conference is too good. We've had people you know, on national level come on this podcast and talk about how excited they are to watch the, co- the conference compete. Um, this is going to be one of the more competitive, I think, conference championship races the Pac-12 has had in a really long time. It'll also be the last by the way, which is an interesting way to look at it. Um, but yeah, I don't think you go, just to make that point clear, I don't think the expectation should be conference championship or bust because there's enough competition this year. Unlike some years, there are years where that is, isn't the case. There's a lot this year. There are four or five teams that can legitimately win this conference. And I think it's going to make it really fun. But from an Oregon perspective, you have to, I think, kind of include that in the equation of, of what you're hoping for or, or expecting, I guess, this year. I, I guess, like, if I had to, like, definitively say something i would probably say like the expectation is that they finish the year in the top 15 and i feel like that's kind of light i almost went top 10 but knowing how tough this league is you know i i think if you get through the league with one loss and whether you're oregon or you're washington uh or your usc like that's pretty impressive because the league is going to be really good yeah, when we talked about it in our schedule breakdown, there's like four games that are very much up for grabs in terms of team against teams mm-hmm. we think can win this conference. So, yeah, part of the reason it's fun to have a good conference is uh, is you're going to have some ups and downs, you're going to have some bumps and bruises, you're going to have some competitive games. It's not going to be a cakewalk. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't want to be reductive to the success of the early uh, Oregon programs at all, um, but the conference wasn't as strong. Oregon happened to be at the, the height of its powers, I think, back in the early 2010s under Chip Kelly. There weren't always, aside from Stanford, as many. I, I just think the conference is more competitive now, even than it was then. And again, I'm not taking anything away from that because I think that iteration of Oregon football would have been highly, highly successful today if you consider how they would have adapted to modern football. Um, but 
you have to consider like the conference is, is, is just getting a lot better um, for the short term before it gets potentially a lot worse. Uh, all right. We're going to move on to our second question from at JT Bobo 13. We had several questions about this. I understand it from a football perspective. It is at the kind of forefront of everyone's mind right now because we have a position coach opening um, for Oregon staff. So from, as I said, JT Bobo 13, do we have any names for the O-line coaching job? And then the second question, who do we think this could possibly affect for the transfer portal in May? Hashtag Otson Audibles. Um, let's do the first question uh, first and, and the second question second, as I think JT would prefer. And as a basic, uh, I guess, just uh, concepts that typically make sense. Uh, Matt, I don't know. Like we've, we've, we've been talking a little bit about kind of how to construct one of these hot boards. Yeah. Um, and how difficult that can be this time of year. And I'll see how unpredictable this can be. I mean, the last two hires Dan made are guys who weren't on, I don't think, anyone's hot board going into it. When you think about uh, Will Stein and, and Chris Hampton, uh, the new safeties coach, do you, where are you kind of at right now? Do you, do you have a sense of, of a couple guys? I mean, I, I think there's one person that you immediately call and he doesn't live very far away from Oregon, and that's Oregon State's run coach, uh, Run game coordinator, offensive line coach, Jim uh, Michael Zick. Um, the Beavers have produced a really good offensive line the last couple of seasons, um, and they do it with far less talent on paper than a lot of the rest of the schools in the conference. Um, and I think you pop in this, the Civil War film if you're Dan Lanning, and you go, wow, that was pretty impressive uh, what they did to us. Yeah. Uh, let's have that, please. Um so I think that's like maybe your first call. Is it realistic? I I don't know. I mean, he's from the Pacific Northwest. He's already in the Pacific Northwest. He's got a good job title at Oregon State. He's producing at Oregon State. Um, the flip side, the, the sell for Oregon would be, hey, like more money, higher prestige of a program, better athletes, a, a wider net from a, from a recruiting perspective. But is that his makeup? Is that what he wants? So I don't I don't know. Um, I would also call Northern Arizona's offensive line coach, uh, Vian Talamavia, uh, Via, uh, he just was at Oregon this past season. He was Adrian Clem's right-hand man, um, the assistant offensive line coach. I, I think that's a big step up going from being the assistant to Adrian Clem to now being in charge. Um, but now that there's an opening, I mean, he's an avid recruiter. Really good recruiter. Um, there was some talk that he had some really good development impacts for Oregon this past season, but he's pretty green. I, I think it would be a, a pretty big push there. Um, and then there's – I have two other guys that have ties to Oregon. Um, Ramson Goldpassion, he is a Green Bay Packers offensive line assistant coach. He's a former player at Oregon, former – GA at Oregon. He's on, he's worked under Chip Kelly. He's worked at Cal. Um, he, I think he also had one other stop um, at the college level. Uh, this would be a guy that that's on the younger side in his thirties um, has NFL experience, has college experience, has experience working in different offenses. Um, that would be a name to, to consider maybe if you're looking for an Oregon tie. And then the next one, um, Alik Terry, he coached under Mario Cristobal, was the offensive line coach at Hawaii. Um, I think kind of the same time as Trent Fig, who's no longer with Oregon, but um, that's kind of a connection with Dan Lanning. Um, 
He's currently a defensive line assistant coach for the Minnesota Vikings, but his background is basically entirely made up of um, offensive line coach. And he has some ties to these players, to a couple of these players on this team. Um, a Mario Cristobal tree type guy, uh, but he knows a lot of the support staff that stayed on. Um, so I, I that would be maybe four names, and then maybe a fifth Arkansas State's uh, Andy Kwan. He he GA'd at Alabama around the same time that Van Lanning was there. Um, he's an offensive line coach for two seasons there as history of coaching tight ends as well. Um, spent a lot of time in the South, which we know Dan Lanning likes to recruit. Um, so I, th- I I think those would be the names to, to maybe look at first. Um, I think o- OSU's offensive line coach is the, the one you immediately call, but does he say yes? I don't, I don't know. I, I mentioned to you guys, I sat next to his wife on a flight back from Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. Did not know that. We talked for a really long time. She's a really nice lady. I, I don't know if I'm breaking any uh, code here, but she's, they seem very happy about being in Corvallis. I think she, yeah. he'd been there for yeah. a couple. This was a second stint that he was under yep. Riley for a while and, and went. They, I think she, I forget where they were in the interim. Might have gone down to Nebraska with Riley. I can't recall. Um, but uh, really highly regarded coach. Um, but uh, she seemed pretty happy being a Beeve and certainly gave me a, a fair amount of of ribbing being the Oregon beat writer sitting next to her on the flight after the, uh, the, cause that was, that was after Oregon State had beat Boise state pretty impressively. And, and Oregon had of course not looked very good in its first game. Um, not that that means that they wouldn't move to Oregon because you, you mentioned the upgrade possibilities. I just thought that was kind of a random sort of happens. I don't fact. think it would happen, but it would personally. be, I, I think it would be a really nice hire in terms of just uh, yeah. a person who's proven to be a really good player development coach at a couple of different places and has, has I mean, this last year kind of speaks for itself with what they were able to do from a run perspective. Um, I like the rest of the names you came up with. Those are, those are names that I thought of. We brought up Vianne. Um, was it last Monday? Matt was on vacation and we talked a little bit about the Clem move and who would make sense. That was like one of the names we brought up. Um, kind of a weird deal. They just left from Northern Arizona, but obviously you can recruit him back pretty easily. Um, I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see kind of where this heads and kind of what the timeline is. I know when we had Greg Biggins on our podcast last week, he was saying he thought it was important Oregon acted pretty quickly here just to make sure that they get relationships to the 2024 class kind of settled in. And, mm-hmm. you know, Clem was such a big factor with obviously recruiting for, for that cycle. Um, Jared, do you have any thoughts on some of the names or should we move on to the, the, the second part of this question? I mean, I don't have too many thoughts on the names. I just think it's um, it's difficult to predict what Dan is going to do, considering his last two hires have just been completely off everybody's board. Yeah, um, it seems like he has a Rolodex or maybe even an encyclopedia of people that he can call, um, and has names that you know from from smaller schools across the country to all the bigger schools across the country. Um, I think it'll be interesting, regardless. I know. Uh, Viana is a name that a lot of people have mentioned. I think that's a really tall task to ask him to come back and coach Oregon's offensive line. Um, it's one thing when he's the assistant offensive line coach and like his first year as an actual coach instead of, uh, you know, like a recruiting coordinator off the field like he was at USC. Um, you know, give him some time at NAU. Maybe he becomes a dude. Maybe the guy that Oregon hires leaves in three years and you go after him then. Um, we'll, we'll see eventually. I mean, it's it's just hard to – Hard to predict. Uh, Dan is, you know, he, he he hires his guys, and 
uh, it's tough to find what the what some of the connect. Obviously, the the first coaching staff that Dan brought in, all the connections were there. You look back at um, you know Will Stein and Chris Hampton. There aren't as many uh, obvious connections that go into those two. So that's more of like Dan has seen these guys work and he likes how they work. So I think he might lean more down that path. But you know we'll find out eventually. Um, uh, to answer the second part of the question of who do we think this could possibly affect for the transfer portal in May, um, offensive lineman I think would be a good start. Mm, um, that's yeah, a good point. with the offensive like that, line coach. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. Thank you, thank you. So I'm not sure how much of an impact this is going to have on players who decide to enter the portal. Um, I know that Adrian Clem was a big recruiter in a lot of guys' case. Uh, but not that I, I was think, just thinking, not that many. Because he wasn't here that long. No, yeah, he really was. I mean, it was Bolton, it was Moala, it was Josh Connerly, it was George Silva, um, Dave yeah, Iuli was another one. Yeah, it's the guys from this last class, and it's the guys from last class. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, start, I think but... the, I think the reason this question is being asked to us pretty often is because Clem was a made was an integral part of recruiting Josh Connerly Jr., who mm. is Oregon's highest rated offensive line signee ever, I think. He's either one or two. Um, and that's a, that would be a big name then in the transfer portal, obviously. Um, but I don't think it makes that much of a difference because that transfer portal window doesn't open until May, doesn't open until after spring camp, doesn't open until after Oregon has made the hire, after this hire has entrenched himself within the Eugene community and the Oregon football program after making relationships with the players, after teaching them his theories, his uh, expertise, um, that's plenty of time for a player and a coach to get along. And I'd, similar to how Will Stein, once he was hired, like one of his first phone calls was to Bo Nix. Uh, I would imagine the offensive line coach, whoever is picked, whoever Dan Lanning assembles for his team of Avengers, uh, I think one of his first calls is going to be to Josh Connerly because that is the, the big fish that you'd like to keep around. When I mentioned earlier, a moment ago, not that many, the reason I said that was uh, transferring as a true freshman shortly after enrolling doesn't make a ton of sense in part because you have no tape at this level yeah. to prove anything. And so how attractive are you on a transfer portal market? And at that point, you're basically uh, you know, backing out of your signing agreement to go somewhere else, which I guess could happen. Um, but that's that's kind of a rarity in this situation. I think I mean, this is the unfortunate thing is that there was one of these kids who committed entirely because of Adrian Clem. That's just sort of that sort of stinks because he's gone now. Sort and of sucks, you're yeah. kind of in a weird spot of I don't really know what the alternatives would be to go somewhere else necessarily. Um, and so that's why I said it's kind of a small group because really the players you're looking at are the guys he brought in last year. And then you have that's that's your Connerly, Iuli, Wooten and Kavika Rogers group. Um, so I guess the Wooten Rogers pairing maybe makes i mean rogers was a guy that i know he like really pinpointed from hawaii he was really under the radar like maybe maybe he's somebody looks around but again none of those guys have really any film so you're going mm -hmm. upside and i know iuli and Connerly would be attractive just from their recruiting rankings that makes sense those are highly regarded players some of the top players in their position groups in their in their class but i i think it's a stretch to think that they bounce either especially in Connerly's case because we've said this before of like it seems like he has a really direct path to the field like he can be the starting yeah. left tackle at Oregon and unless they whoever they bring is I mean it, it would take this hire just being a complete disaster I think for him to leave um, this hire would have to come in and just basically prove to Connerly he has 
either no plan for Connerly, like he doesn't think Connerly, like the, the coach comes and says, like, ah, I don't think you're really going to play here, so you might want to look at transferring, which I just don't see happening given the talent. That's not happening, right? Or or it's or it's somebody who comes in and Connerly goes, this guy's clueless. Like this guy has no idea what he's doing. I just don't think Dan's going to hire somebody who that's going to be the the outcome. So uh, I mean, because the opportunity to be the starting left tackle at Oregon, which is a top 12, 15 team this year, based upon different preseason rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's a pretty good situation. You're probably not finding too many situations out there that are even similar around the country. I haven't done the exercise of looking at all the schools. So that's where I kind of go. Um, I, I understand the question because it does make sense, but guys that were here that I guess preceded Clem and were here for, under Cristobal and, and Mirabal, well, those guys have already gone through one coaching change, and Oregon saw a handful of those guys leave before. But the guys that stuck around already kind of knew that they were going to have to deal with new coaches. So I don't necessarily think that that's going to cause too many problems. And then the, the guys that he recruited, like we said, some of them are either so new that it's kind of like, what, what, why would they leave? It doesn't make a ton of sense. And then the ones that maybe it would make sense for have a kind of a path to the field. I guess I really would be the only one, but even that I'm kind of like, he, I think he's probably a too deep guy. So as a, as a redshirt yeah. freshman, so that's like still a pretty good situation to be in, especially at a school. I know he really, he really cares for cause he's, 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 he's fairly regional. So. I, I think this idea that players bolt after a play, after a coach transfer or takes a different job um, is way overblown. At one point it was a big deal, but the staff sizes across the board at college at the college football level have grown so much that there are so many coaches involved with relationship building, skill development, rehab, these personal connections, the, the tentacles have spread weight has, has spread out all over the place. Yeah. And in the Steve Greatwood era of Oregon football, he was basically the only guy that had any kind of interaction with any and all the offensive linemen. Sure. The offensive coordinator or maybe the tight ends coach or the receivers coach had a little bit of an interaction, but it was basically Steve Greatwood, every single meeting, every single practice, every single off season meeting that was in charge of, of that position group. And it's not just an Oregon thing. It was an everybody thing, but the, the, the college staffs are, have, grown so much that i mean when we go to practice it's not uncommon that the offensive line has three guys there coaching that that position group and under mario cristobal it was often five people coaching that position group and so when a position coach leaves yeah players are going to be bummed players are going to be disappointed but i think the day and age of players coming and going factors in here they're understanding that hey it's a business these guys are are have aspirations and they're they're moving on um just like some players leave oregon um and then the fact that there's so many other coaches connected now to this position group or any position group like i just don't think the idea that a position coach leaves and all of a sudden you have a fear that you could lose three or four guys because of um transfer because of that now like Sure, maybe a guy signs with Oregon, one member of the 2023 class signs, and he bolts. But I I would imagine that we knew some of this stuff was popping up right around signing day. So I would imagine like there was probably a phone call with Adrian Clem and Dan Lanning saying like, hey, I want to be here, but this opportunity has presented itself. If I if this opportunity continues to progress, there's a possibility I'm not here. This is step 
you know, this is our, our, our plan to attack if this happens. If it doesn't happen, you know, this is the only opportunity I'm pursuing. I'm going to be at Oregon. I imagine those conversations were had. And if players haven't asked out of their national letter of intent yet, you know, we may see that a couple weeks after the hire gets made, if, after they get a chance to maybe meet this guy. But I, I, even then, I don't really envision any of that happening. And I had one more thought before we maybe go to break. Um, you think about last year and, and the turnover at the along the offensive line. Well, those those players got to go play for Cristobal and Mirabal, who they were familiar with. There's no option for these guys to go play for Clem because he's going to the NFL. No. So that also removes some of the hypothetical player follows a position coach, which, by the way, we've seen. Like, look at, look at what Oregon did last year in the portal of recruiting guys almost in, like over 50%. Yeah, Tuioti brought in two guys from Nebraska. You had uh, Lachlan bring in Noah Whittington, who he had coached previously at Western Kentucky. Um, I think there was another one. I'm, I'm oh, uh, Christian Gonzalez was coached by Coach Meat uh, down in right. Colorado. So you had, I think, I think that's about it. But you, you had that's five right there, or four or five instances of, of, of situations where a guy followed his position coach to a new school. That's not on the table because Clem's going up the level. So that also kind of is another reason why I'm. I'm just not buying that there's going to be a, a mass exodus again, barring this hire being just a disaster, which given the track record under Dan Lanning, I find very hard to believe because I haven't, there's hasn't been a hire where I've been like, yeesh, this hasn't worked out. And I guess the only one where there seems to be murmurings publicly is the Tosh Lupoy hire. Um, but again, I, I think people are pretty quick to want to fire people these days. And so I'm not surprised that, a defense that doesn't perform very well has people clamoring for a, a change. But um, for the most part, I think the hires have been pretty universally respected, with, I guess, the exception of, of Tosh Lupoy. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, dive into the second half of the mailbag. We've got some questions on men's and women's basketball coming up. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, two questions in, two more to go on this mailbag edition. Matt, this question is probably going directly to you because this is your beat in men's basketball from at Nick Bjork. Less of a question, but you guys should take a minute and reflect on Infali Dante and how, as a raw blue chip prospect, he was willing to trust the process and we're all now witnessing the payoff. Great teammate, great attitude, and turning into an absolute killer on the court. Um, I know it was disappointing the way that the second half took place on Saturday against UCLA. I was, I was following that one along and it felt like after the first 20 minutes that they were in position to maybe pick up a big win. But regardless of that part, Dante in that threat, and, and honestly watching that first half, Dante was like a problem, like for UCLA, they didn't really have an answer. And that's been the case, I think during this run kind of more often than not when they've had success is, is he's just been a standout. And I do think this is, I think this, this question from Nick is, is really really well put together in terms of the kind of the context of the story of this isn't you know sometimes we get lost and just are focused on the results like and Folly's had to you know go through so much during his time yeah. here and the expectations when he got here and then all the injuries and and now we're as as uh, as Nick said kind of seeing it pay off and it's been I know for me that's not my beat but I I, I watch the men's team every game essentially it's it has been fun seeing him develop this season into I know there's a a conversation on our message board, people being like, when was the last time Oregon had a, a post presence 
who is this reliable. You know, he's, he's already, I believe, a single-season field goal percentage record holder. I think he's probably pretty close to being in position to be the career. Um, so there just hasn't been a lot of guys who are more reliable around the basket. And that, I don't know if that was something we, we kind of knew or expected after the first two years, which were admittedly injury-related, but a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I, I think um, Dante's progression is is pretty remarkable. I maybe jinxed him because at halftime I was like, I know, is, there, sweet. <laughs> is there anyone that can legitimately guard this guy consistently? And and my defense to that was, well, like or UCLA's defensive guarding and following Dante was just post-entry defense. Like Oregon was atrocious at getting the, him the ball. Um, Jared and I talked about that a couple of times during the game. He only scored two points in the second half, but I still contend he was pretty impressive against the Bruins when he had an opportunity to get the basketball. Um, but his growth from where he was as a freshman, you could see, I remember watching him being like, yeah, he's a five-star, but man, he is incredibly raw. And to the point now he gets the ball on the low block. He's going to score. I, I, I feel like, more often than not, he is going to score a basket. And the only reason why it feels like he, he misses uh, is because for some reason he hasn't done it all season. He pops out to the elbow and he shoots a jump shot. And it's like that's the only time he really misses in games now, it feels like, is when he has to shoot some kind of jumper, um, even if it's seven feet from the hoop. But if he's right near the block, you're, you're not stopping him. Um, I think his defense is – improved tremendously on the other end of the floor. I, I'm pretty impressed with that. And I mean, maybe to flip the question here, like is he Oregon's best true low post back to the basket, big man that Dane Altman's ever had because Jordan Bell was a terrific big man, but his offense was basically get, catching lobs or, or coming and throwing down dunks off rebounds. Um, Chris Boucher was a three-point specialist who would also catch lobs for dunks. He didn't really have like you know a crazy back to the basket move. Um, Paul White is nowhere close to uh, Dante's level. Kenny Wooten is a worse version of Jordan Bell. Like Matt, what about Waverly Austin? <laughs> Waverly Austin couldn't hold him. No offense to Waverly, but he, he was not. <laughs> in the same stratosphere as in following another man. I mean, Dante's got moves now. Like he's got the spin move. He's got the up and under. He's got the dream shake. He's actually shown that a couple times. Um, I, shake, I, I, I think he's like legitimately the, the best big man that Dana's ever had from a, a true old school low post uh, perspective. And it's unfortunate because Dante's like 20 years too late. Cause if he was playing in the, in the nineties, he'd be a first round draft pick. No, no doubt about it. I think, yeah, Dante's improvement has been really fun to see. Um, I'm not sure if it's more of like uh, trusting the process as much so that a lot of his college career got ruined by injuries. He just wasn't healthy. He just, you know, he was having a really good season and then he suffered a torn ACL. And now he's finally 100% healthy and he has been this entire season and he's been really critical in Oregon's stretch run of late. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see if that translates into a tournament bid, but – for a while, yeah, he was the number one guy. I think he's probably the best player on the team. Um, I don't know Oregon men's basketball history as much as you guys do, mostly because, well, you guys are much older than I am. Ouch. But I know. Yeah. <laughs> God. But 
In the last eight games, Dante is 14 a night, almost nine rebounds on 68% from the floor. Um, that's really good. That's exactly what you need from your big man. Uh, he's only playing 26 minutes a night, which is kind of interesting. I think Dana talked about it after the loss to UCLA that he wishes he would have played him more. Um, I do too. Wish he would have played other guys less because uh, Oregon's fault is not being able to get the ball to Nefale as often as possible. Yep. I think the only issues that Nefale has are he misses around the rim for some reason every once in a while. It's like easy layups that he just kind of blows, which happens all the time. I watch the Celtics. They they miss layups like all the all the damn time. It's very frustrating. Jared, do, and you, the watch, other uh, one is, Jared, do you watch Oregon women's basketball games? Because Yes, I also watch those. I, I cover the team. Um, they also miss a lot of layups, which <laughs> is very frustrating. <laughs> That's the um, point, yes. <laughs> And the other issue that Nafale has every once in a while is he just turns the ball over too much, but that's mostly because teams send double to triple teams at him sometimes before he even gets the ball. But uh, if he's really going to work on a team, they're going to send doubles, triple teams immediately after him. Um, I would too. Uh, he's Oregon's best offensive threat overall. I think, like Matt said, you give him the, the ball on the low block. Um, he's a one dribble hook shot. He's a one dribble spin baseline. Um, he's, Despite the turnovers, I think he's a good passer out of the low block, which is something that Oregon really needs. I think the implementation of Nate Biddle into the starting offensive lineup has really cleared some space for him and given him even yep. more opportunities to go to work. Um, Oregon just needs shooting around him, which is really nice when Jermaine Kuznard is playing because he can shoot. Um, Will Richardson has been really yeah. up and down from yeah. beyond the arc. Um, we yes. could get into that if we really wanted to. I did some some stats after um, after the game with Will Richardson and – in Oregon's losses that I think were interesting. Um, but for Nafale, I think we'll just stick with him. Uh, his improvement has been very impressive. I think he's worked himself into being like a second round draft pick. Um, definitely somebody who's going to try out at least in like the G League and, and um, have some type of NBA career because despite the fact that he is a low post player um, and is like Matt said, probably 10 to 15, 20 years too late, He's still awfully athletic. He could still move. Yeah. He could still cover perimeter defenders. He could still become somebody like I don't know. He, despite the fact that he misses all of his mid-range jumpers, it doesn't look bad. The rotation on this ball is pretty good, um, but he could develop into some sort of mid-range jumper uh, aficionado, but and carve himself out an NBA career. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a ten-year journeyman center who's, you know, six points, six rebounds a night in 19 minutes off the bench, and I think that's a role that Nafale Dante could carve out for himself going down the road. He's 21 years old, and if you're the Oregon Ducks, I think your offseason plan, like your biggest recruit that you could sign, even though they've signed three guys already, is getting in Fale Dante to come back for a fifth season of college basketball. Um, how realistic that is, I, I don't know. But if you add in Fale Dante to a group next year that could can include Jermaine Kuznar and Keyshawn Bartholomew, with Mookie Cook, KJ Evans, and Jackson Shellstead, you now have wings. You have a big man, and you've got a, another point guard on on the roster. Um, I, I I think it's the rare instance where for Dante and for Oregon it'd be beneficial if if he came back. But we don't know like the dynamics of Dante's you know life. Does this is does he need the money? Does his family need the money? Is he tired of school? Uh, does he want to go pro? Does he, is he kind of 
does not want to have the same role that he had this season um, for Oregon. Is he ready to go to college or, you know, go pro? I, I don't know. We don't know those answers. Um, but if he comes back next season for that COVID year, like Will Richardson did this season, um, that could really make things really interesting for Oregon. I don't have much to add because, again, you guys cover the team. But I, I guess just the last thing that has impressed me, and you guys have touched on a little bit, is just the general athleticism. The, the chase down blocks he's had this last couple of games, yep. that's just not something that I really knew if I expected from him ever, yeah. ever. Because, again, he was so challenged by those knee issues. I just didn't know if you'd ever see the fluidity that – because when you went and watched him as a high school player, you saw it clearly. Like he was a, a very good athlete. But the first couple of years here, it had been kind of hit or miss and iffy and – at times you saw the potential there and other times it was you could just tell he wasn't quite right so it has been fun seeing him athletically um be where people expected he would be and to see that kind of as again as nick said the payoff has been kind of fun and um the other thing with kind of the mid-range shot i was going to mention it's a small one also impressive how much he's improved his free throw shooting from each year shot yeah. I mean, he's up uh, over 25% now from his freshman year four years ago to now. He was a 40% shooter as a freshman. He's now shooting about 65%. Um, I think that number is a little better. I don't have the conference split here in front of me, but I think it's a little better in conference than it is um, total for the year. So that's that's been another thing that I think kind of stands he's, out. He's uh, 67 in conference. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a little better. Um, I just bring that up because we talk about kind of what would an NBA role be. Well, if he's the level of athlete where he can routinely get down court and, and block shots and then also shoot free throws and maybe, as Jared kind of suggested, develop that mid-range shot, you can kind of see the makings of maybe, as you said, a journeyman career for, for Infali at the next level. Um, you just don't – you know, there are a ton of really gifted athletes in the NBA. I'm not saying Infali would even be in the top 10%, but seven feet guys who have this sort of general agility do have some mm -hmm. value for sure. Yeah. Not, not not starting all star caliber value, but certainly end no. of bench get in get in and have a role for a long time kind of values. Bingo. Um, Can't teach a, height. A Dwayne Deadman career, maybe. I see I wanted to drop his name too, but he's he's expanded his game to the three point line. I don't I don't know if Nafale is gonna be doing that anytime soon. But but he didn't but have it coming. It's a he, good, didn't, he didn't have exactly. it coming out of high school or out of yeah. college at USC. I remember he was a purely a post guy. So yeah. maybe that's something it's that a good it's about. a good comp. I liked it. Okay, uh, now we're going to go into the less fun part of the show, which is where we talk about the women's basketball <laughs> program, which has been, I'll be I, honest. I'm not laughing because of that. I'm, I'm just shocked you said that. Well, well, and it's just the truth. I mean, <laughs> I, don't know. It, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I, before we even get to the question, it's, it, I was, I watched the game yesterday with my dad before I watched the Super Bowl. We both were just kind of like, it's, it's a frustrating team to watch, um, even objectively with kind of no rooting interest of like, Oh man, uh, they look so good for stretches, and then they look so not good for other stretches. And they're in every single game. Like I, he, my dad texted me before the USC game. I was like, "What are you expecting?" And I was saying, "A win would be great, but more than likely, it's going to be another diff difficult loss." And that's just sort of the expectation with this group right now. And so I'll get to this question now from at Jack zero six one six two six five. A lot of numbers. Excellent. I think mm -hmm. I might have added an extra six in there, but uh, regardless, I don't think anyone's going to have a hard time finding this Jack if they want to go look on Twitter. Uh, what's the problems and what can be done to fix Oregon women's basketball in time for a tournament run? Um, it's becoming just to just to, I mean I hate to say it, it's becoming less. I, my confidence level is certainly waning. This is a tournament team. Um, you know they've lost five in a row and they've actually I think they're what four. They've won four out of their last fourteen games. Um, so it's good. limping to it's the good. finish line for sure. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I don't know if a tournament run is in this team, if I'm being totally honest. And I think it, I think anybody who's watched them closely understands why I'm saying that. Um, again, they, they're competitive every game. They very easily could have won both games in the L.A.s. They were up 14 the first half against USC and then struggled in the second. They were leading or tied for most of the first half with UCLA. And that carried into the third quarter. And then UCLA hits a bunch of threes and they take a lead. Oregon comes all the way back. And then UCLA scores 12 of the last 14 points. So um, it's just kind of been uh, – it, it feels like Groundhog's Day almost watching this team because it feels like all of these losses have a similar feel where it's – I don't think they've been completely out like talented more than maybe two to three times all season when they played Ohio State, when they played Stanford. Um, but they just don't win any of these games. And so what are the problems? Well, the, the fourth quarter execution has been terrible. I wish I had pulled up some stats on this, but they, they've been outscored in the fourth quarter pretty significantly during – this five-game losing streak. Uh, they've led a lot of these games going into the into the fourth, or or at least been leading in the third. In the third, so um, just haven't finished games very well. And then the other thing is, is when you talked about the way this team was going to be constructed going into the year, the idea was you had these two veteran guards that you were going to rely upon. Um, mm -hmm. You were going to have at one point a, a, a you know a starting center back in Sedona, who I, I'm probably not the I'm not sure what exactly you would have expected from her because it was a pretty spotty career, but at least you had somebody who was reliable and someone who was experienced and who'd been through some some tough ups and downs of a season. So you thought you had some kind of pillars to, to lean upon when things got tough. And I just don't know if Oregon has right now, this team as constructed has too many people that really you can rely on when things get tough. I think India Rogers is undoubtedly proven to be that. And I've actually been just about as impressed with her as I've been with anyone this women's basketball program has produced obviously since Sabrina. I just think she's been a warrior. She's battled. She's the smallest person on the court basically every game, and yet she finds ways to make contributions and to keep Oregon extremely competitive. I mean, she scored more than 30 points in two of their losses this year in conference play. Uh, I thought she was excellent again against UCLA, just, just didn't have mm -hmm. enough help. But that's the issue is she doesn't get enough help. And Tahina Pau-Pau, we talked about it on our last show, that was this was before this weekend's games. It didn't get any better. It actually was kind of worse. It was a really tough weekend for her. Now you go pull up her stats. Um, it's it's just been a run. She's in a rut. Like there's there's nothing offensively that makes you encouraged by it either. Um, she had a couple nice passes against UCLA, which were encouraging. Like she reads the floor, but from an offensive scoring perspective, there's nothing there. So that's been that's been a big part of it. And then the other three players in the starting five you're relying upon are all basically I, – I include Philly as basically a freshman. This is a very inexperienced basketball player who's never started before uh, at this level. And so you've got those three to rely on, and, and it's hard to rely on true freshmen to win games, especially against veteran teams, which most of these teams they've lost to have a little bit more experience. And then you go, hey, well, we've got some veterans on the bench, but I mean, Tay Hansen's been up and down. Elise Hurst is, is a, is a, has been – I don't even know what the word is, but the shooting percentages are, are pretty unbelievable in a bad way in conference play. Um, going into this last weekend, she was like five for 30 from the field and one for 17 from three. And I think Excellent. she made she made one three this weekend, but I think she ended up shooting like a total of maybe two for 14 or something for the, for the weekend, two for 11 maybe. Um, uh, two for 11, you're correct. Yeah, yeah. So so that's not getting any better. So you don't hose and dubs it. <laughs> Hosendev gives you good energy, but my point is, like, you look up and down the roster, where, where, where are the answers to these questions? What can you fix? I don't know if they're there. I mean, it, this to win you games. You got them. Yeah, to win games, this team needs everything to click, and unfortunately, I just am not confident in that because everything we've seen out of some of these key pieces over this, over this kind of skid has been 
there's not much to be encouraged by because it's been consistent struggles for Pow Pow. It's got the inconsistency of the freshman. Uh, Rogers has been kind of the only constant. There's been a couple of games where she hasn't been at her best, but for the most part, she's been extremely good. But again, there's just not a lot you rely on game in and game out, which is why they've been really inconsistent from quarter to quarter, and, and, but also why they just don't win games right now. So there, there's my long-winded way of saying, like, I don't want to be so – I know this is extremely a pessimistic view, but I think it's the realistic. I think it's the right one that I don't expect this team to figure these problems out right now. They have four games left in conference play. You could convince me they win every game. You could convince me that they win only one game. And the only reason I would say they win that for sure is it's a home game against Arizona State, who's I don't think won a game since November. So, um, like it's 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 tough. Good odds. They're in a Those tough spot odds. right now. And again, I don't. There's nothing walking through the door that changes it unless suddenly Tahina Pow Pow becomes the player we thought she was in past years and even through November and early December. But we just haven't seen that this year. No. I don't think that it's hurt, right? We don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, Kelly, she Ke- is, but... Kelly, Kelly says she's dealing with a physical thing. Okay. That was that was what he said on Monday. Um, but on Sunday, he said that she wasn't. So it kind of changed. But I, I, I am, I'm going to just take him at face value and say she's dealing with something. Yeah. 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 And she's so she's clearly struggling because of it. So you're what were you saying, Matt? Limited in ro- you're limited in your roster, and one of your best players is hurt and having to play through the injury, like. This just feels like a hill that you're just not going to be able to get over. Yeah. And, and the other part, the teams you're playing game in and game out are just as talented, if not more talented than you. And I know that's the part that fans don't get because Oregon recruited really well. But I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this on this podcast or if I talked about it, but like last year, 13 of the 24 McDonald's Americans went to Pac-12 schools. Like this conference is loaded yeah. with talent. There's a lot of really good, good players. So it's it's not you know that's the other part you have to realize during a slump like this is they're not losing to terrible teams they're still in the top twenty in the net for a reason it's because mm-hmm. all the teams they lose to are really good but you have to beat these teams to be in the tournament and I just I just don't see them winning Plus enough you're gonna, games you're, you're going to see these teams in the tournament and right these are the type of teams you see in the tournament so right I, I mean Kelly knows that it's clear from his coaching tendencies the last two games where he's playing all the starters at least 29 minutes a night that these are absolute must-win games. He's just not getting any real contributions outside of India Rogers. And even against USC, it wasn't that big of a contribution with only 14 points. But, I mean, Chance Gray at 13 against UCLA, but it was 5 of 18 shooting. Um, well, she, 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 Chance was great in the first half. She had nine she points was, on, yeah. on four of six, and I think she was like one of ten in the second. So it didn't get better. Yeah. It, it doesn't help. Yeah, and that's then, just that's just that's just freshman stuff, though. That to me, I, I I'm I'm okay with the freshman having ups and downs because I get it. And like chances certainly. goes into that half and goes like I've got nine points. I've been effective. I'm kind of the only option here besides India. I'm going to try to take over. And then she goes one for ten and isn't very productive and has some ups and downs. Like I I accept that. That's the kind of thing that's going to happen. What's harder too. to accept is the veteran guards just like that. Like again, Rogers, I think is you can kind of exclude from this group of the fact that Pow Pow. Hanson and Hurst, if you just pull up those three players' stats during this this skid, and this is maybe an article I can work on or whatever. I don't know if people care enough, but it's well, it's, it's really it's really damaging to their team. Hanson barely played this weekend. She yeah, had 18 that was total minutes, which was I, I thought was strange because it seemed like, like you were saying, it's one of your veteran guards. It's someone you could at least theoretically rely on. And not, not that she's working her way out of the rotation, but – you know, 18 minutes in two games is is not what you expected at this point. Like, 
if you're talking preseason, it's like, hey, we're going down to the down to Los Angeles. Ty Hansen's going to play 18 total minutes. It's like that's not what you would expect at all. Um, and like, I guess to answer the, the the overall question is, what can Oregon do to solve these problems? It's no clear answer here. They just need to. I mean, play, it sounds play better. stupid. Play better. Yeah, it sounds stupid, but <laughs> yeah. that's what they need. They need their better athletes and better players to to do their job. And Indy Rogers is doing her job. It's just she can't do it every night. And she tries. Don't get me wrong. She certainly tries to do it every night and pull Oregon out of the gallows and bring them to a victory. But a lot of the times it's the poor shooting and the lack of consistency, as we discussed on Friday's podcast over and over and over again, that bring them down. And sure enough, it again happened this weekend because, I don't know, it's just like a record stuck on repeat. Uh, it's, it's what it feels like at this stage of the of the season, at least for the last well, month. I found it really interesting because Kelly did after the – I can't remember. I think it was after the USC game did say our players get to a point where they go, oh, we've been here before. We know what the result is, and we've got to break it, yeah. that cycle. And I do think there is something kind of mental here. I'm not saying that – like, t- again, they, they, they are – not overtly more talented than most of the teams they're playing. Like you look at USC, UCLA had the number one recruiting class in the country last year. It's five stars up and down the roster. USC, Ray Marshall was a, a, a top 15 recruit. They've got players, Destiny Littleton helped South Carolina win a national championship. Like they have, these are good players on these teams. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the leading scorer was one of the better players in the Big Ten last year at Minnesota. Like like these are these are good teams they're losing to. But I, but I do think that there is something kind of mental when you get into this block of like we just every game feels the same way. We go into the fourth quarter, it's close. We make some mistakes. Suddenly we're down six, and we have to try to fight back, and it's too much. Like, it, like I said, it's it's it, there are very like strong similarities between most of these losses, and I think at a certain point you mentally go, uh, I've seen this picture before. I know the ending. Yeah, it's exhausting. I mean, once these losses start to pile up and they're all basically the same. It absolutely would take its toll on a player because you get into the same predicament and you're like, ah, shoot, we're going to lose today. That's just what's going to happen. It happened last week. It happened Thursday. It's happening again on Saturday. Um, I mean, it's it's a tough cycle to get to break out of. And maybe all they need is one. Maybe on you know, when they play this week, the first game, maybe a similar pattern, a similar record. And uh, they break free. You know, They break the curse. They break the spell. And they win. And then maybe that'll help them push them towards a postseason birth and success, but hard to rely on that at this point. How much of this is chemistry? Like on the men's team, it was very evident the pieces just didn't fit. And I think some of the personalities didn't fit the team. Like, is there, <coughs> I realized though the women, they don't have enough pieces because of yeah. some of the injuries and some of the departures that that happened this season. But do the fit do the do the parts that they do have do they fit or is this just not a a well constructed roster? I think they fit if everybody was like my, again. I think the hard thing is is yeah yeah like I think in theory I like the roster. On paper const- they fit. I like the roster construction of you. You know, if, if everybody's playing their best, you've got three guards that can all score and create shots for themselves and for others with Rogers, with Top Pop, with Craig, and you've got Van Sluten who can create a little bit for herself and is a, and is a good player around the basket. And you've got Shea, who's a really good rebounder and a good rim protector. Like these are all 
attributes you like in a team in terms of building it. Mm -hmm. You've got an anchor in, in Che. You've got players who can score around her. Uh, in a perfect world, Che would be a little bit more consistent scoring, but she's a sophomore who's barely played this sport. This is like her fourth year playing competitive basketball. And honestly, what they've gotten out of her is pretty remarkable. She's like one of the nation's best rebounders. She averages 11 per game. But if she could score a little more on the block, that'd be great. They would maybe require them to double. And then she could, she's actually a pretty willing passer. Maybe she could make a double her. She could find people and find shooters. But that has been a hard thing. But, you know, her deficiencies to me are the least of the problems. The, the bigger problem is that, like, the, the, the concept of having this dynamic backcourt was supposed to be because defensively, these aren't great players individually. Uh, I think Chance Gray is a really good defensive guard. Uh, Rogers and Pau have always been kind of a little bit love liabilities based on size and general athleticism that they possess. So you're kind of you're kind of constructed to be more of an offensive minded team, and mm -hmm. if you just aren't making shots, and you're only getting consistent offensive production from Rogers, then that's that's going to be a problem. And like my point earlier of like if everybody was bringing their A game, it's just really hard to like if Pau Pau is hurt. It's hard to expect her to be at her best. And if you're dealing with true freshmen, it's very hard to expect them to be at their best for a full four quarters for multiple games in a row. And so I, I think those are the – I don't think it's chemistry. It's just, I think the team kind of like understands – most of them understand what their roles are. It's just at times they're just not good enough to fill those roles in, a, in kind of a winning way, which which again is tough. And, and, and I think in a perfect world, you probably prefer if your, your best player and your leading scorer wasn't 5'7 and, and the perimeter player. Um, because it, it's a lot to ask her to game in and game out, get to the rim and finish consistently and carry that role. Like, you know what I mean? Like you prefer, yeah. like there, there are, there are certainly guards that can do that. Like that can carry a team. We saw Peyton Pritchard do that at Oregon, obviously Sabrina Nescu, but she's four or five inches taller than Rogers yeah. and, and, and certainly more physically broad and, and, and just a bigger human being. So yeah, I know. I think the roster construction doesn't bother me um, is if everybody was like what, kind of doing their job do, but like they yeah. aren't and then the, the the shortcoming of the roster construction and, and some of this is coach graves's fault some of it's not is you have nine players and kennedy basham is your ninth and she's hardly usable she actually played okay against ucla so you really don't have a whole lot of options here and so you know i think i'll be curious to see the living you know kind of what he learns from this season because as you might recall going uh, into this offseason, or I guess I should say after the roster was kind of finalized, you know, I, he was on our podcast and I kind of asked him what he learned about the portal. And he said, I think if we bring in a bunch of people every year in the portal, we're probably going to lose a lot of people from the portal. He wanted a smaller roster so that there were there weren't um, par parties that were just disappointed every year with playing time because you have 13 players and all of them think they're playing. They're not going to all play. I think he I think it's almost hit the extreme level, though, where you really have eight players and all of them are playing a ton because you have to play yep. them. And you don't have a lot of alternatives. So when Elise Hurst is in conference play and she's she can't make a three-point shot and her role as a three-point specialist, well, you can go to player X, who's also a good three-point shooter, to kind of supplement the minutes. But they don't have that right now. So they just kind of have to roll with the players they have, which, again, you thought you had 11 scholarship players to start the season. One player got hurt, another player left. Both were supposed to be contributors. Asai looked like – I mean, honestly, Asai kind of is the sort of player you'd love to have right now in terms of just another weapon – who's a yep. perimeter scorer who can shoot a little bit and kind of create her own shot. Um, but yeah, the current roster construction is kind of what it is. Um, I, I like, I like the individual pieces and I think they kind of fit. Okay. I just don't know if there are enough of them and they certainly aren't consistent enough to, right. to anticipate great success this season, especially in a really competitive conference. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. We're going to get this one in 
just under the deadline of an hour time. Thank you for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you for submitting your questions and also watching the show on YouTube. Until the next one, which I believe is a special one with Jared. Uh, we'll tease it there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll, be we'll our next one. Look out for that one on Wednesday. It's going to be a good podcast. Until then, though, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.